If you would, take your Bibles and turn to the book of Acts. Appreciate everybody stepping in today. It's been quite a morning already. It is Don's birthday. All right, before she leaves, happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Don. Happy birthday to you and many more. (laughs) That's right. She's older than me. I'm telling you. It's all right. I love it. I am so blessed to have her in my life. I'm telling you, anybody that knows her knows that's a big amen. (laughs) I'd be lost without her. Acts chapter 3 is where we're at this morning. Um, Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Lord, once again, we just come before you just for a moment to ask your blessing upon the word as we walk through it. And Lord, I pray that you'd give us wisdom from on high. I ask God that you would illuminate your word to Lord, so that we may understand it with clarity. And Lord, that we may not just understand it, but apply it to our hearts and our lives. And now Lord, I pray that you'd just be with each one that's here today, Lord. And Lord, may you use it to help us walk with you and to help us grow in you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to read verses 19 through 26, and then we'll start walking our way through that passage. Uh, in verse 19, it says, Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that He may send Jesus Christ, who was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all His holy prophets since the world began. For Moses truly said to the fathers, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you, and it shall be that every soul who will not hear the prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Yes, and all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow as many as have spoken have also foretold these days. You are the sons of the prophets and the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. To you first, God, having raised up his servant, Jesus sent him to bless you, and turning away every one of you from your iniquities. Considering everything that Peter had said to those who gathered around on Solomon's porch, uh, he is exhorting them to repent and be converted. In essence, Peter is offering them a potentially really exciting future. I have to admit, as I read through this, I I thought it was saying one thing, but literally I believe God was saying, no, that's not what it's saying. How many of you have ever read a passage of Scripture and say, well, I think I know what this means? And then you find out later, it's like, no, that's not what was being said there. Anybody ever come to that? That's, this is one of those passages for me personally. All these years, I, I see that word repent, and all of a sudden you go off on that word repent, and it's like, okay, God's calling everybody repentance. Well, yes, that's categorically true throughout Scripture. That's not what he's necessarily saying in this particular passage from an individual, personal standpoint. That's what I've been thought of, I've thought of my entire life. But it gets a little bit more detailed than that. So I want to begin reading verse 19 again. 
And it says in verse 19, Repent, therefore, and be converted. So he's basically giving two exhortations here. Peter is giving an exhortation that, that is really twofold th- things here. The first one is to repent. And so over the years, you've heard me give you the definition of what it means to repent. It literally means to change one's mind, right? You're going this way, you're walking along, you're confronted with truth, and in your mind you've come to the conclusion that, hey, the way that I've been walking, the direction I'm going is unbiblical, it's not right with God, I need to come into agreement with God, change the way I think, change the way my mind is working, and go the opposite direction, turn my back towards the sin and unrighteousness and unholiness, right? That's the idea of repentance, is that we're putting the sinfulness that we've been confronted with behind us. We're coming in agreement with God with what He says it is, and I'm going to change my mind. But the second thing it says is to be converted. And literally, depending on which, which direction you go with this, it can mean a lot of things, but at its most basic foundation, to be converted means to change one's faith. Not necessarily as individuals, but as a nation, He is calling them to repentance. And we see that very clearly in verse 19. So actually, if you go back to verse 17, so yet now, brethren, I know that you did this in ignorance. What was he talking about? You as a, as a people group, you sent Jesus to the cross, you crucify him, you beg for a, a murderer to be set free, which is what you got, and he says, I understand that you did this in ignorance. We didn't look at it last week, but there's some several passages in the Old Testament where God deals with sin differently when it's done out of ignorance than it's done out of willful ambition. And yet, there's still consequences to both, it's still, both are still sin, but he deals with them differently when it's done in ignorance. And he says, this is done in ignorance. However, verse 17, uh, as did also your rulers, but those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets, that the Christ would suffer. So even though you did it in ignorance, you nonetheless did it, but you did it in fulfillment of what the prophets had said was going to take place. And now he says, repent. Is he talking about the individuals? He's talking about the group. To come to repentance. Now, in order for the group to come to repentance, they have to come to repentance as what? Individuals, as personal people. And so he's telling them to repent and be converted. And then he says that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. So you notice the result of exercising repentance and being converted in verse 19 and 20 is number one, that your sins will be blotted out. As a nation, they were in sin. As a nation, as a group, they had done things that were displeasing to God. As a nation, they were doing things that were breaking the heart of God. And he says, if you will repent, your sins will be blotted out. And I don't know about you, but forgiveness of sin is probably one of my favorite attributes of God. I don't know about you, but I, I over the years, I've shared this in men's Bible study, but I, I had an incorrect view of who God was. I grew up in church from the time I could walk, right? I mean, I've shared my testimony before. I was that snotty-nosed little bus kid that came on the buses as a four-year-old and later got saved as a kid, got baptized as a kid. But I had this idea because of the, you know, how our church was run that every time I did something wrong, God was just waiting there. Oh, you know, just waiting to snuff me out if I, if I did something wrong. And for years I lived that way. I lived as, as though God was just waiting for me to mess up. And I, and I dare not break rules. I was a kid, and I'm not kidding you, when I went, I went to a Baptist Bible college. Uh, and if you know anything about the uh, prehistoric Baptist Bible colleges um, that many of us went through in those early years, there was lots and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of rules. And I'm not saying the rules were bad. And Mark Lowry says, you know why people give so many rules? Rules are made to be broken. And, uh, but I was a kid that would not break a rule because I was afraid God was going to be right there. 
I, I, in fact, I had a contest going with my three roommates and the RA that was in my dorm that I could get less demerits in four years than they did, and I destroyed them because I didn't want to be the kid who got in trouble. I was a rule follower, believe it or not. <laughs> I've kind of broken that mode a little bit. Um, but I was waiting for this God who was just, if I did something wrong, he was just going to be <clears throat> snuff me out. I realized over the years that God is not that God. He can be that God, but he's not that God. He's a God of love, but he's also a God of justice and mercy and grace. And I realized growing up later, after my college years, is that God loves me so much that he exercises patience and forgiveness too. Isn't that awesome? And I realized that forgiveness is a beautiful thing. And even today, I'm reminded of what forgiveness is about. I don't know about you, but we like to hold grudges. How many remember somebody that did something against you 20 years ago? Yeah, some of you are not going to raise your hand because you're going to prove the point. You remember. And we, even though we don't want to remember, we choose not to forget. That person irritated me. They did this against me. They said this about me. They, they, they lied. They did, and we, we can't forget. We're not God. But it's amazing that God does that. He says, so far as the east is from the west, so far as he what? Removed our sins from us. He says they're buried in the deepest part of the sea. And in 1 John 1, he tells us that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to what? Forgive us our sins. And to what? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Uh, to me, I know, this is me personally, though, but I know of no greater attribute of God than the God that who chooses to forgive me. And sometimes I feel convicted, even this morning, that when I don't want to forgive someone else. Because they said this. Because they did this. Because they acted that way. Because they, whatever, fill in the blank. Because the difference is that your sin is better than their sin. Right? We kind of have that idea sometimes. But I'm thankful for a God who forgives. And as a nation, He says, if you will repent and be converted... Your sins will be blotted out. God says, I will offer. How can He do that? Through His blood that was shed on the cross of Calvary. No other way. In fact, Hebrew reminds us that without the shedding of blood, there can be no what? Remission or forgiveness of sin. He went to the cross. He shed His blood that we would be willing to forgive. And by the way, let me just say this. That if you're not willing to forgive others, neither will your Father in Heaven forgive you. I didn't make up that verse. God did. And yet we choose to harbor someone's sinfulness against us and not forgive them. I'm guilty. I've done it in the past. God, forgive us. But the first result of exercising repentance as a nation and being converted, even as a nation, he says, as a nation, you did this to Jesus. Yes, you were fulfilling prophecy. Yes, you did it in ignorance. But you still did it and there's a consequence. It's your sinfulness. And he said, your sins will be blotted out. I love what it says in 2 Corinthians 7, 9 and 10. Let me just read it. It says, Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. Stop right there just for a moment. So the problem with being confronted about sin is that sometimes we're sorry that we got caught. Big difference between getting caught and being sorry for what you did. Big difference. I know that your kids would probably have never done this, but have you ever caught your kids doing something wrong? 
I, I remember one time growing up in my family that my dad had bought some powdered donuts, the old powdered donut story. And one of the kids, he said, one of the kids, one of you kids ate it. No, no, not us, Dad. Not, none of us did it. We didn't eat it. And then my dad just kind of wittingly said, well, where was it when you found them? And my brother goes, they were up there. It's like, oops, forgot. We don't want to be in trouble. We don't want to get caught. We don't want to be the one that gets caught. But yet, God's Word is also clear about that side of sinfulness as well, right? Because He says in Psalm 66, 18, if I regard iniquity in my heart, in other words, I know there's sin, but I choose not to deal with it. It's not that big a deal. I'm going to suppress it. He says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not what? Hear me. Proverbs 28 says, He that covereth a matter shall not prosper. When we cover our sins, or honestly, you know we can't cover them, right? But we try. We kind of have this idea that, well, you know, I did it in private. Nobody else saw me do it. So therefore, I didn't do it. Problem with that is that God sees. Hebrews says that all things are naked and open before Him with whom we have to deal. Psalm 139 says, no matter where I go, God is there. You can't hide your sin, even if you wanted to. And yet we think, if, if I just kind of pretend I didn't do it because nobody saw me, then I'm okay. No, you're not. Because sin will cause broken fellowship with God. So he says, now I rejoice that not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner that you might suffer loss from us in nothing, For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation. So here's what he says here. If you're truly sorry, and you're not just sorry you got caught, but you're truly sorry because what you did, you remember what Joseph said, he goes, how can I do this great wickedness and what? Sin against my master. That's the kind of view that we ought to have towards our sin, is that we have not just sinned, we have sinned against God. How can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? So he says that if it's truly sorrow, if it's sorrow that is right and biblical, it leads to repentance, which means that you come into agreement with God about this thing that you did. And this thing that you did is wrong, so therefore it must be punished, and therefore there is a consequence. But he says godly sorrow produces repentance leading to what? Salvation. Not to be regretted, but the sorrow of this world produces death. So God is very clear here. True repentance leads to salvation, even. And so even as a nation. So not only does God offer forgiveness to have their sins, but God offers forgiveness through His Son, Jesus. You know, there are people who feel obligated to do something when they've been caught doing something wrong. And so out of guilt, they will buy a gift. Ladies, don't, don't raise your hands, but how many times over the years has your husband really royally screwed up and then they come back with a gift? To say they're sorry. Maybe your husband hadn't got that yet. Um, maybe they didn't, you didn't mean nothing. I don't know. Some of the looks on some of your faces are like, nah, he ain't done that yet. I've done it. My wife said in our first or second year of marriage, she was like, yeah, I got a drawer full of cards saying you're sorry. Well, I am. Quit giving me cards and change. Oh, Lord, I do not want to hear that from my wife. Ladies, don't tell me you're sorry. Show me. Words don't mean anything. But when sorrow is biblical, it leads to repentance, which means there's a change of heart, a change of mind. 
So then he says, not only will your sins be blotted out, he also says, number two, that times of refreshing will come. Now this is where this passage got a little bit hard for me. I'm just going to be honest with you. There are some passages that's like, ah, I've read this like 27 times this week. And I'm sitting there going, okay. Then after I read it 27 times, then I try to find some commentary from godly men that I know and respect. But many scholars believe that this phrase refers to the millennial kingdom. And Israel had long awaited for God's kingdom to come. And there was an obvious problem, though. Let me, let me read the verse here again. He goes, um, verse 19, Repent therefore and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. So Israel had long awaited for God's kingdom to come, but there's a problem. And it's an obvious problem here in this situation. They rejected the king of the kingdom. That was literally the issue. They were rejecting the king of the kingdom. And as Peter pointed out, you can't have the kingdom while rejecting the king of the kingdom. And so you're not going to have peace. You're not going to have uh, longevity. In fact, if you go back to verses 13 through 16, uh, chapter 3, beginning verse 13, he says this, The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified His servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just, and asked for a murderer to be granted you, and killed the Prince of Life whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. And in His name, through faith in His name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through Him has given Him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. You see, He was reminding them that you rejected this same Jesus who had given this man healing. And you can't enjoy the benefits of the kingdom and reject the king of the kingdom. And I think in this day and age that we live, if we're going to practically apply that in this world that we live right now, too many of us are rejecting the king, even though we claim to be part of the kingdom. How do we do that? Disobedience? Lack of faith? Not spending time in prayer and reading God's word? Even though we say he's our king? And do you realize that in the word in the New Testament, the word is kurios, which means Lord and Master? We claim that He's our Master, but yet we don't obey. We want the benefits of the kingdom, but we don't really necessarily want to follow the king. Because when the king is in charge, that means we are not. Anybody ever feel that way? This world that we live in, I want all the benefits of the kingdom of God. I can't wait to spend eternity in heaven. I can't wait to worship Him around. Can you imagine what the worship team is going to be like in heaven? Holy smokes. I, I cannot wait. I love music. I love to, to think about what that's going to be like. And it may, it's probably not going to be anything like you've ever heard. It's not going to probably be like anything we've ever heard in any church. It's going to be so much better. But can you imagine what heaven is going to be like? And we think about that and we dwell on that and we can't wait that there's going to be no more sorrow, no more tears, no more pain, no more sickness, no more death. Forever and ever, we can't even, com- we can't even comprehend that. I mean, think about it. Can any of us comprehend eternity, number one? Can you imagine getting up and doing this every day of your entire life for all of eternity, worshiping God? I, 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 I'm too mature for that. I'm, I'm just going to tell you. I can't remember, you know, three days ago what I wanted to do for Indio next week. I, I'm just telling you, to comprehend eternity, 
is mind-boggling. And to think that we will have all eternity, and people talk about, when the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. What a day that will be when my Jesus... And we can't stay in the church sometimes. Come on. Let's be honest with ourselves. We don't get it. Wow. He comes and he says, we want, we want so badly to be part of the kingdom one day. But we can't stand submitting ourselves fully and surrendering committedly to the king now. Shame on us. I'm guilty. Maybe you are as well. But Israel long awaited for God's kingdom to come. Isn't that what they wanted over and over when they realized that the Messiah was coming? They thought, well, Je- well Jesus, when are you going to set up your kingdom here on earth? But Jesus wasn't about the kingdom that he was going to establish and rule on earth. He said, that's not why I come. He goes, I came to seek and to save those which were lost. Consider Isaiah 44 3 says, For I will pour water on him who is thirsty and floods on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. He wanted to bless them. And he says, If you would but repent and be converted, these times of refreshing as a nation, these things that you long for, will come. In Joel chapter 2, verse 28 and following, he says, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit. On all flesh, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Say, what in the world is all that? Something we can't comprehend, number one. But he goes on and says, And also my men servants and on my maidservants, that I will pour out my spirit in those days. And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth. Blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Isn't that what he says in Romans 10.13? Anybody who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be deliverance. As the Lord said among the remnant who the Lord calls. In other words, what he's saying, nationally, times of refreshing could not come without first having times of repentance. But here's the third thing. Jesus will come. And that's what he says here. He says, verse 19, Repent, therefore be converted, that your sins be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Isn't that awesome? It signifies that we are going to be in the presence of Jesus. Wow, that's going to be awesome. Then he goes on to say, and that He may send Jesus Christ who was preached to you before. Yeah, the one that you rejected. The one that you said, crucify, but give us the murderer. That Jesus is going to come and be in our presence. Well, who all is involved in this relationship? We see that in verse 20 and 21, really. So Jesus Christ, who has preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all His holy prophets since the world began. So God would send the Messiah again. The Redeemer would again come to Zion. In Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, it says, And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on Me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for Him as one mourns for His Holy Son, 
and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. Why? Because he has died and he has risen. But he says, I will pour out on the house of David and they have to the spirit of grace and supplication. Question. I thought about this last night even as I was going over my notes. He's going to pour out on his people grace. Who needs grace? I do. I mean, did they deserve it? They rejected him. His people, he says, came unto his own and his own what? Received him not. Jesus came in the flesh and his own people rejected him. And yet he still is going to give them grace. Undeserved, yes, but that's every one of us. They will look on me whom they pierced. And yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son, and grieve for him as one grieves for his firstborn. Psalm 110, verse 1, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. And the whole idea behind the footstool is what? He is going to claim ultimate victory at this point. Ultimate victory. I don't know about you, but when I think about Jesus, there's so many ramifications of this, but the one that came to my mind is this. Several years ago, I went to Israel. And when you look at the final battle, and God's Word tells us a lot of description about what that battle is going to be like. In fact, it says that blood will fill the valley up to the horse's bridle. And when you're sitting on top of the mountain, mountainous area, looking down in the, in the valley, it's like a big horseshoe. And it's rather deep. And you can see how, if you have the mindset, you can almost see how the valley could be filled up and flooded if, if, if somebody were to basically fill it full of water. You can see it because it's almost like a trench that's down in the earth where the final battle will take place. But to think... That one last white horse, the one who will destroy the enemy, and he says there will be blood to the horse's bridle, fill the valley. Talk about a picture of victory for us as his children. That's incredible. And he says, but ultimately he goes, till I make your enemies your footstool, we'll have victory. Look at verses 22 through 24, he says this. For Moses truly said to the fathers, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from the brethren. Him you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you. And it shall be that every soul who will not hear the prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. I think he's taking what he's saying pretty serious. He said, you better pay attention and do what I say. Yes, and all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow, as many as have spoken, have also foretold these days. So, first of all, he brings up Moses. And literally, Peter is quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15, through 15 and 18. He's literally quoting Moses' words. But I like what he says, basically, four things in this verse. And then John MacArthur draws a parallel between him and Jesus that I'll share with you. But first of all, he says, The Lord your God will raise you up. He's the only one that can do it. He'll be the one to raise us up. Number two, a prophet like me, Moses says. One that comes, number three, from your brethren. And number four, it says, Him you shall hear. I like how MacArthur draws a parallel here. He says, 
notice what he says, his thoughts. on, And basically he's taken this from Acts chapter 7. Let me just read the verse here. Verse 37, he says this. Uh, Verse 37 says, This is that Moses who said to the children of Israel, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from you, brethren. Him you shall hear. Six things that he brings out I thought were interesting. Number one, he was spared death as a child. Who was also was spared death? Was not Mary and Joseph spared the death of their child? Was not Moses spared death when they put him down in that basket, pitched it with tar and put him in the river? Renounced a royal court. Once again, when Jesus came, He said, I'm not here to be an earthly king so I can have my guards and my, my, my throngs. And Just like Pharaoh, He did not want to grow up in the palace of the king. Number three, He had compassion on His own people. Later you find out that Moses had a lot of compassion for his people, as did Jesus. He made intercession for the people. Just as Moses cried out for on behalf of his people, so did Jesus. He spoke with God face to face. And then finally, he was the mediator of the covenant. But here's what he says. Every soul that will not hear what the prophet says shall be what? Utterly destroyed. What will happen to a people who chooses to reject the king who has come to give them salvation? They'll be destroyed. And there's no way around that except for what he says in Romans 10.13. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. I don't know about you, but I believe that's what our nation needs today. Some say, well, well, where does America fit in the prophecy of end times? I don't think it does. That's just my opinion. I'm not going to spend a lot of time there, but I think we're going to see everything unfold around us. But nowhere in Scripture, it talks about Gog and Magog, and we can find out where those are, those places are on a map, but it doesn't say anything about the United States of good old America. But we're going to suffer the consequences, trust me, of a God who will finally have enough. I, I think we're there. We're getting close to it. Of course, people have been saying that for 50 years. But all I can say on, the, on, on this side of it is that I hope I'm ready when He comes. I want to be found ready. I want to be found serving. I want to be found obediently walking with God when He does come. And then He gives a final message in verse 25 and 26 to the rest of us. He says, You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, and In your seed shall the families of the earth be blessed. To you first, God, having raised up His servant Jesus, set Him to bless you in turning away every one of you from your iniquities. You know, in this sense, they're blessed as all of us are from Jesus. But that last phrase, in turning away every one of you from your iniquities, He gives us the ability to have our sins forgiven when we, as a nation, as individuals, put our faith and trust in Him. I don't know about you, but why are we so slow to do that? Why are we so slow even as a nation to, to remember what God has done? Someone said, and I know everybody's given all kinds of people credit for the phrase, but those who forget the past are what? Condemned to repeat it? I don't want to go through what God's going to 
I want to see God's hand of righteousness come. And His hand of holiness come. And us sitting around His throne for all eternity. I'm thankful that I know Jesus. I'm thankful that I have that hope. I'm thankful that I responded when the Holy Spirit convicted me. I'm thankful that I have a relationship. It's not based on what I do or don't do. It's not based on how good I am or how bad I have been. I'm thankful that I know Jesus personally. But before a nation can turn, a nation is made up of individuals who need to turn. And that's what he really started off with this entire passage. All those that were standing around Solomon's porch, they had just witnessed an incredible miracle. They had just witnessed Peter allowing the Holy Spirit to work through him and bring healing to a man who was born lame. No doubt this was the same guy they'd all known and seen for years. God does something great and all these people are shocked at what had just happened. Peter and John and this lame man now walking, go inside and they begin praising God, worshiping. And now there's a crowd that's gathered and he's saying, repent, all of you. And be converted. That times of refreshing may come. That you be in the presence of Jesus. And part of the blessing of all that is that He forgives. And He offers His grace and mercy. I don't know about you, but I, I need that. I want that. I'm reminded of how good God is. Even in the midst of my sinfulness. Yes, I realize this is specifically talking to them but practically applies to many of us in this room who need to come to Jesus. I will never assume for as long as I live that just because you're in a church that you know Jesus. I will never assume that. Maybe you do, and I trust that you do. I hope that you do. But some of you want the benefits of the kingdom, but you haven't accepted the king yet. And until you do that, you'll not experience what he's talking about here. And you'll miss the blessings that God so graciously wants to give to you. And I trust that you'll think about that. Lord, as we come before you, Lord, we submit ourselves to you again, Lord, that we need you. Your word is still timely today, Lord, in the fact that, Lord, there are so many in our presence, Lord, in your presence, that want all the blessings of the kingdom, but don't want the king. Lord, it's maybe a commitment factor. Maybe it's a surrender factor. Maybe it's a don't want to give up sin factor. I don't, I don't know what the reason is. But dear God, I know you do. And you know what's hindering not only this nation, but individuals who make up this nation, what hinders them from surrendering everything to you. And I pray, God, that Your Holy Spirit would break down the barriers. Lord, that Your Holy Spirit would work in such a way, Lord, that first of all, it would be obvious that You're doing it. And number two, that all the excuses would be removed. Lord, we as a nation, we, we desire times of refreshing. We desire being in Your presence. But Lord, that requires submission, surrender, commitment on our part. So Lord, I pray for each one that's here today, Lord. I don't know their hearts. Lord, you do. 
Lord, I, I see some evidences of many people who know you. But Lord, there are also seemingly evidences of the fact that some may not know you. And I pray, God, today that you would draw them to yourself. As heads are bowed and eyes are closed, I just ask for a moment that no one be looking around, just that we'd all just keep our heads bowed just in an attitude and spirit of prayer. But could I ask you a couple questions as we do each and every week as we close the service? Maybe you're here today and you say, well, Pastor, I'm, I'm that person. I want the blessings of the kingdom, but have not been willing to submit to the king. Maybe I want the peace, but haven't dealt with the sin. Haven't truly repented. Say, Pastor Ken, if I'm honest with myself, God knows my heart. There are some things that God has convicted me of this morning. Would you pray for me? Anyone like that this morning? Yes. Yes, in the front, the sides. And I'll say, Pastor, there's some things in my life that have not been made right yet. Pray for me. Anyone else? Can I ask one more question then? Do you know Jesus? And are you certain of it, the fact that you have a relationship with Him? If not, He says, repent and be converted. Come into agreement with God concerning your sinfulness, the sin that He shed His blood on the cross for. Come in agreement with Him and repent and be converted. Anyone like that to hear this morning say, Pastor, if I were to die today, I don't know that I have a assurance that I would spend eternity in heaven, but I'm, 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 I'm concerned about that. I'll not embarrass you and not call you up, but with uplifted hand, you say, Pastor, pray for me. I'm not sure I know Jesus. Anyone like that this morning? then for all of us who are here, maybe it's time to recommit, to resurrender, to truly say, I'll follow the King no matter what. Can I challenge you to pray that prayer? To truly say, God, I will follow you as my King. You're not just my Savior, you're my Lord. You're my Master. I follow you. Pray that prayer. Let's all stand to our feet as we close in prayer this morning. Lord Jesus, we submit ourselves to you. Lord, we learn from the story in Acts 3. We know what your heart desire is for the nation. We know what your desire is for us as a nation. You said, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. And yet, Lord, we have wandered so far. Lord, God, draw us back. Bring conviction and encouragement for those who are walking with you. That their labor is not in vain. But Lord, for every one of us, I pray, Lord, that we would daily submit ourselves to You, surrender to Your Spirit's leading, be filled with the Spirit, Lord. I ask, God, that You do a work in us, Lord, that we cannot do in ourselves. None of us can be good enough, work hard enough, be holy enough. God, we need You. And we pray that Your Spirit would work in us. 
be with each one who raised their hand, their heart towards you this morning, Lord. May you grant victory in their lives as they submit to you and as your presence is with them, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.